Today we are reading Matthew chapter 8, verses 15 through 35. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of the two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as Gentile as, and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, which whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But the same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves, who owed him a hundred denarii. Seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So, my heavenly Father, will you also do every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Isabella. And at this time, we invite children who'd like to head to Sunday school to join with Miss Stacy, and to middle schoolers who'd like to go to Bibles and Bagels to uh, rally together in the narthex. let us pray.
Oh, holy God, continue to speak to us now your word of love and truth and grace. Silence in us any voice but your own that hearing we might believe and believing we might be transformed and that we might live as different people because of your call upon us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. A fourth grade boy was celebrating his birthday on crutches, and so he couldn't carry the cupcakes into his school without help. His dad asked his sixth grade son to help his brother carry them in. I could, the sixth grader responded, but I'd prefer not to. <laughs> Spotting a teachable moment, the dad asked his son, well, what would Jesus do? To which the older brother responded, Jesus would heal him so he could carry his own cupcakes. <laughs> what does greatness look like? It's the unexpected question that the disciples raise in the passage prior to the one that Isabella just read. Though they have witnessed Jesus perform countless miracles, heal the sick, cast out demons, preach like no preacher they've ever heard before, they are wondering who among themselves is the greatest. Who among the 12 of them deserves the most honor, is most valued by Jesus? Who among them is better than all the rest? And it's the question that we'll be exploring together during these weeks of Lent that are ahead. For success, greatness, a life well-lived as Jesus sees it is dramatically different than how success and greatness in a life well-lived are often defined and encouraged by our popular culture, by the world that we live in. You see, greatness in the kingdom of God, in the eyes of Jesus, means to be humble instead of filled with self-importance. It focuses on the other, not self. It's concerned about giving, not getting. It's about humility, not ego. It prioritizes treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. It cares more about the long game not short-term success. Greatness in the kingdom of God is a life that unites and builds bridges. It does not divide and build walls. It's being childlike. Ultimately, it is about love. To the degree to which you love, you are great. This past Monday, I was at the funeral for the dad of a dear friend of mine. As often happens at these kinds of events, a number of family members took turns sharing stories. The family members who spoke described him as a great human being, a, a great father, a great friend. 
to give evidence of that. They did not speak of the long hours that he worked at his job, the degrees he possessed, the wealth he amassed, the kind of car that he drove. They spoke of the manner in which he loved, how he never missed his son's soccer games, the look of delight on his face in a particular photo with his daughter, how he knew the name of every dog in his neighborhood and often knew more about the personalities and lives of those dogs than he did of the people who owned them. They spoke of his adventurous spirit, the faith that he had and that he nurtured in his children. He was a great man, but not because of the titles attained, the money earned, the rungs of the ladder that he climbed not because of how he did or did not measure up according to the standards that the world often uses. He was great because he loved. This morning's scripture is three passages within the passage, and they all relate to a key theme that reflects what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. The theme of forgiveness in the manner in which we grant it. Because it is impossible to love one another for any length of time or to be a person of greatness in the eyes of God without the presence of forgiveness. Now, the first passage within the passage offers very structured and specific guidance on what to do when someone sins against you and you seek healing and restoration of that relationship. Go to them, Jesus says. Seek them out. You take the initiative. Point out how they wronged you and give them a chance to respond. If that doesn't work then and only then, take one or two others for their support and wisdom and if that doesn't work, bring the concern to the church as a whole and give the person who sinned against you a chance to make things right. And if none of those steps work, you've done all you can. Let go of that relationship as best as you are able and entrust it to God's care and God's grace. Now, I don't know about you, but when someone has wronged me, my first instinct is to go to someone else and to complain about what an inconsiderate person they are. And I choose that person I go to very strategically <laughs> to get the maximum support and agreement that I'm looking for. Dennis, you are right. You deserve so much better. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't triangulate. Don't escalate. The path to forgiveness begins by going to the person directly and give them a chance to make amends. That's the first passage within the passage. The second is super short. It's Peter asking Jesus how many times he is to forgive. He says seven times probably thinking that's a pretty large number. It's way past the three strikes and you're out rule. He doesn't want to overdo it. He does not want to be more exuberant than required in his spiritual discipline of forgiveness. 
Jesus' answer, of course, is you are to forgive 77 times, by which he means there should be no limit to how many times you're willing to forgive. Now, he's not saying make yourself a doormat, a victim to other people's abusive behavior. He is saying forgive, forgive, that you need not carry that heavy burden of anger and resentment on your shoulders any longer. And in the third and final passage within the passage, Jesus tells that parable of the unforgiving servant. A king is settling accounts, and one of his servants owes him 10,000 talents, the equivalent. I don't know if you've done the math on this, but the equivalent of over 540 years of wages for a typical person in that day. A vast amount, an amount most people wouldn't have any hope of ever repaying. The servant falls on his knees and begs for mercy. The king responds with mercy. He forgives his debt. He releases him. Can you imagine the measure of joy and gratitude that that servant must have felt? Zippity doodah, zippity day. But here's the plot twist. On his way home, he crosses paths with a fellow servant who owes him money, a hundred denarii, the equivalent of about a hundred days of wages. Remember, he was just forgiven a debt, the equivalent of 540 years of wages. This person owes him the equivalent of about a hundred days of wages, a minuscule fraction of the debt that he owed. He seizes this fellow servant by the throat he says, you pay me what you owe. The other servant has no money. He begs for mercy. It is not given, and he is thrown into prison until his debt is repaid. Other servants witness what has happened. People are always watching, aren't they? I walk down the street, and I'm mindful of all those doorbells on my neighbors with the cameras. Well, even in this day, people were watching, looking for an inconsistency between what we say and what we do. They're aware of the enormous debt which this man owed and which was forgiven, and the modest debt which he just chose not to forgive. They tell the king. The king summons him and says, are you kidding me? Could you not have had mercy on your fellow servant the way I had mercy on you? And in anger, the king hands him over to be tortured until his entire debt is repaid. So here's what I wonder. Is there someone in your life who is in need of your forgiveness? And might it be that both of you will be freed from bondage when you grant it? In 2011, on the 10-year anniversary of the September 11 terror attacks, I'd been serving here as senior pastor for about two years. It was a Sunday. The anniversary just happened to, to fall that way. And the lectionary scripture passage for that day was the same one as our passage for today. 
It was on forgiveness. Now, I need to tell you that I would not myself have dared to propose that as the theme for that day. But there it was in the scripture. And so I preached a message on Christ's call to forgive those who harm us, those who wrong us. It was an emotional day, an emotional service of worship. Mike Berger, who was a member of our church and whose brother was among those who tragically was killed in the World Trade Center towers on that awful day. Mike played his guitar. He, he sat right there, Ginny, where you're sitting. He sang a song that he had written. And when the service was over, I can still remember how an elderly gentleman person who'd been a member here for decades who has since passed away. He grabbed my arm in the receiving line on the way out and he said, Dennis, are you telling me that we're supposed to forgive the people who attacked us on September 11th? Is that how far forgiveness is meant to go? Because there's no way I intend to do that. How would you have answered to that question? I'm sure I paused for a moment. I said, it does appear that that's exactly what Jesus teaches. It's uncomfortable. It's hard. It's not the approach by my nature that I would choose either. But that's the path Jesus calls us to, to forgive. Whatever the situation, whatever the relationship, not once, not twice, not just when it's easy or straightforward to forgive, not just when it goes with the flow of popular culture to forgive, but to forgive 77 times and to keep on forgiving. To forgive in those moments when it is most difficult to forgive. Friends, the world we live in tends to teach an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If your enemy wrongs you, respond with a proportionate display of power and aggression. If you are in the playground during recess and someone punches you in the face, as long as they threw the first blow, you punch them right back. If a coworker insults you, Insult them in return. Christ's teaching is quite different. Christ says if someone wrongs you, if they sin against you, if they owe you a debt, grant them, a, grant them pardon. Extend them mercy. For greatness in the kingdom of God means being someone who grants forgiveness even when it's not easy, even when it goes against the consensus of our culture, even when that response is not your first instinct on what you were meant to do. Almighty God has forgiven us, our every sin, our every trespass, our every debt. It's part of the Lord's prayer that we pray together nearly every time that we gather. Will we not also Grant forgiveness.
to those who have trespassed against us.